Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How is vulnerability the key to courage? Colonel Dee Dee Harfield has been a leader in the U.S. Air Force for over 20 years and she is the subject of a case study in Brené Brown's groundbreaking book, Dare to Lead. We speak about what it means to be brave and why it's so hard to have hard conversations. Like all of Wiser Conversations, this took place with a live online audience. Sign up at wiserconversations.org to participate in the future. When you are faced with a scarcity mindset, you can't help but want to armor up and protect yourself. Part of that armoring up and protecting yourself is shielding your heart. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wiser Conversations, together at home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher, and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. It's a special day for you. Maybe you want to share why that is. Um, well, I've uh, been in the military for 25 years, United States Air Force, and yesterday was my last day uh, in my primary job. So now I will be transitioning, um, as I get ready to retire from the military, I'll be focused the next few weeks on making that transition. Metaphorically, I gave up the Blackberry, which we used to call it, right? The iPhone. So I no longer have the electronic leash to my uh, job, which is incredibly freeing. Well, it's super exciting. Today we're talking about a number of things, but vulnerability which involves new things, new ideas, new experiences. And we were just touching on that just now. Like, what does it feel like? What does it mean? Like, and in the language you were sharing before, what is it? This must feel quite frightening. It's everything. Um, you know, getting to do some of the work I do outside of the military, which is really steeped in understanding emotion, and then going through something yourself where you have a spectrum of emotions from excitement to sadness for you know, I've spent 27 years of my life around this community. So sadness that I'll be leaving and an apprehension for what I don't know. Um, you know, I don't know what the civilian world is like. Oddly enough, the thing that is causing me probably the most uncertainty is how I get medical insurance. <laughs> I, I don't know how civilian medical insurance works. So that's a very American thing. <laughs> Worrying about insurance. No, it really is. Right. Yeah, true, true. I mean, I don't know, really. I mean, so that's that's something I'm jumping into. Um, and so it's just you're kind of processing all of these emotions, sometimes all at once. And um, other times kind of, you know, you'll go through a flow of different emotions. So um, it's fascinating to be able to go through it and observe it at the same time to watch how I'm processing that uncertainty you know, Brene Brown defines vulnerability as risk, uncertainty, and emotional exposure. Um, and I'm embracing all three of those, right? <laughs> it sounds like you're right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, risk as in like, what am I going to do for a living? Is it going to work? Um, uncertainty, because you, you just, after 27 years in one environment, one culture, you know that you're going to have to leave and learn a new environment, new culture. And emotional exposure, because I think 
you know, my heart will always have a place with the United States Air Force. I have an, an immense amount of gratitude for everything it's done for me and the opportunities it's provided. And so uh, my heart will break a little the last day I put the uniform on. I can imagine. I think from the outside, when you think about that kind of work and vulnerability up against the idea of courage and bravery and what, what I think an ordinary person would think about what's involved in being in, in the military and what does courage mean, the first thing that you think of is not going to be vulnerability. Mm-hmm. How did you come across that as being work that became really, really important to the last set of years that you've been leading? Oh, goodness. You know, I get that question all the time because people have a really hard time juxtaposing those two against one another, but really they are so intimately intertwined. I kind of first stumbled into the language and into her work through her TED Talk in 2010. But what really struck me was I, for the last 25 years, have carried around the quote, the man in the arena. I've carried that quote in my wallet for 25 years. Mm. And um, I was given that quote on a little business card by a former boss. And I always read that quote knowing that's who I wanted to be, but I didn't always measure up to that. And I didn't always live up to that expectation I had of myself, but I didn't really have a language as to why. Um, And then when I saw her TED Talk, it started to give me that language that there's so many of us who want to be brave with our lives and we want to be courageous with our lives. And in that TED Talk, she talked about vulnerability being the birthplace of courage and innovation and creativity. And it's also the birthplace of love and connection and belonging. And so it spoke to me on such a deep level that I became you know, I hate to even say it, but I became obsessed with finding everything of hers I could. Um, The next product I stumbled upon as I was digging into the research, um, she has an Amazon program or she has a program on Amazon under the same name, The Power of Vulnerability, but it was six hours long. So it took kind of what she condensed into 20 minutes And it expanded it into, you know, the fuller six hours with a much deeper exploration of the research behind the work. And I was hooked. And I immediately started watching my environment and watching the people I was around. And when you have the language and the kind of the the lens has been lifted and you start to see in the conversations you have, you can hear. So you see behavior and you hear the language about so many of us wanting to be better and so many of us wanting to step into the arena per se, but then behaving in a way that is contrary to who we want to be, who we know we can be, um, when we're faced with that degree of vulnerability, when we're faced with that discomfort, um, we don't always show up how we want to. And so I knew that and it spoke to me on a level I probably can't always explain. It was just very, uh, it was visceral. And I was like, this, this is it. Like, I need to know more of this. From that day on, I have tried to apply and practice that mindset, that work, that behavior every single day. One of the ideas that comes out of this work and this exploration is the root of the word courage from the French or the heart. And I think that everyone can relate to in the matters of the heart. It feels like when you're really moving into something or connecting with something, whether it's something you love or someone you love, that there is a sense of fear of what if they don't love me back? Or what if I'm not good enough at this? And I think when you peel back that layer, and you think, yeah, when you really want to put your heart into something, it does mean that you're putting it on the line and you're risking things. Uh, And I think that thread between um, giving yourself over and at the same time, that means if you're really to do that, you're putting yourself out there, um, exposes uh, that that idea of vulnerability, right? It does. And, you know, I think the military is a special culture with which to really explore this work, because I think people who may not have as much exposure to the military... um, don't understand how much heart is really in it. We are from day one 
we talk about taking care of the person to the right and to the left of you. And this isn't just a job where I go and I check in from nine to five. Um, we, you know, I've deployed several times in my career, twice to Iraq. Um, you lose friends. You are there through both the, both the sadness and the triumph of those around you. Um, and so your heart is really in it. And so to think that we don't have to embrace and, and accept and discuss what that means and how that shows up for us as leaders is misguided. And I think it's a missed opportunity um, because we talk about it on the surface that we want to be leaders who take care of the people around us, um, but we don't always prepare ourselves for how that might affect our hearts. At least we don't today. Um, you know, you might recall the story in the book. I talk about two documents. I talk about a 1948 document, uh, you know, the Air Force's very first manual on leadership. And I talk about, um, at the time, it was a 2011 document. Um, the Air Force's, I, when I did this research, it was 2014, but that was the Air Force's most current manual on leadership. And I did a comparison of the language because as I was going through the first manual, I was struck by how much emotion I felt and how many emotion words I was seeing in this book on leadership, in this you know manual that I didn't see in the 2011 document. And one of my favorite moments was as I was doing a word search, because I was looking up all these words I was seeing to see how often they were used in the context of talking about leadership, everything from belonging and friendliness and mercy and kindness and fear. Um, those were in there over and over and over again. But the best moment of that research was when the word love showed up 13 times in this 1948 document on leadership. And it talked over and over again about how you have to love your men. You think about it, there weren't a lot of women in the military at that point, but you have to love your men. They have to love what you do. You have to show them love. And it just, it really affirmed for me that this work to some may seem new and may seem soft, but if you think about the greatest generation and the men who were coming out of World War II who wrote that document, they saw some of the most horrific fighting we've ever seen. They gave up so much. And even they knew the, the most, the bravest among us, those who we um, hold up and esteem to be the warriors that we want to, um, you know, we want to emulate, they themselves understood that at the, at the core of it, it's love, that we have to love the people we choose to lead. Um, and I don't think that stops at a military wall, right? I think that we need so much more of that today um, in, in anywhere we tend to um, engage. We spend so much of our lives at work that why can't we have relationships that are kind and loving and compassionate um, and human, right? Like just really addressing the humanity of each of us. What do you think happened I don't know when and how it happened, but that whole way of leading kind of maybe disappeared, let's say in business, that in the, that idea in the 80s would have just been laughed out of the room. I think more recently, we've had real openness to consider different ways of thinking about leadership. You know, we've had the rise of things like meditation and mindfulness in the business space, which even 10 years ago would have been thought of as crazy. Something's opening up now that people really are open to thinking about these different ways, right? What, what do you think is going on in the world that's enabling that? Wow. I mean, there's so many things. Um, I think, you know, a couple of them might be language. We're not hearing the language as much. You know, when, when people ask me, because I get that question all the time, what do you think happened? Um, I'm not a churchgoer, so I'm not, this is not me promoting religion, um, but I also think we've gotten away from the majority of our populations attending some type of faith-based um, organization, faith-based congregation. And if you think about the language in that very first manual, kindness, love, compassion, it sounds very similar to a faith-based type language. Um, and as we got away from that, we stopped hearing it as much. And I think when you stop hearing it, you stop using it. You know, I've, I've had people, 
I don't know where I picked it up or why I do it, but whenever someone talks to me, they'll be like, how are you doing? And I'll say, oh, I'm fabulous. And I use the word fabulous all the time. I don't know why, but I do. It's a, it's a regular for me. And I had a gentleman come up to me, one of the guys who worked in my group at my last assignment. And he said, ma'am, I'm going to really need you to stop saying the word fabulous. <laughs> and I said, I said, why? Because it kind of caught me off guard. And I said, why? And he said, um, I was out with my bros and they were like, hey, dude, how's it going? And I went, fabulous. And he said, they just looked at me. And there were a couple other moments where it had slipped in as well, right? Like in the context, I think he didn't, he just wasn't a word he used regularly, but he caught himself using it. And if you think about that, when we're around people and we're hearing a language, we tend to pick it up and we tend to adopt it, right? So I think that's one area. I think we've stopped using the language and therefore our, you know, we stopped hearing it, we stopped using it. We definitely have had some advances in technology. And so as we've become more technologically savvy and we've relied on technology more, I think we've put a hierarchy on the importance of that, that really what it comes down to is the, is the tech. And people are, you know, as we look at AI, where do people fit into that? So we've kind of lost sight of the human side of tech. And then I think the third one that Brene talks about most is, especially for our country, you know, in the United States, 9-11, it was an incredibly impactful moment, not to just the individual, but our country as a whole. And she talks about how she's been studying shame and vulnerability um, since before 9-11 and has seen a significant shift in the scarcity mindset of our country. And so when you are faced with a scarcity mindset, you can't help but want to armor up and protect yourself. And mm. part of that armoring up and protecting yourself is, you know, shielding your heart. Mm. And when you have to shield your heart because you've been exposed to so much hurt, it's hard to open it up and let just, you know, just open it up a little for fear you won't be able to close it back. When you come to talk about language, you know, one of the things that we think of is, okay, I can have a conversation and I can say, it's pretty easy for me to say, hey, Didi, let me be honest with you. Or, hey, um, Didi, can I be frank with you? Like, those are easy. And there's lots of different ways for us to say things like that when we want to set out a tone. But it's not something that you hear, you know, hey, Didi, can I be vulnerable with you? It's a bit more difficult. It doesn't even sound right. How do you open up conversations when it seems like the words and the language, it seems like there's a, a bridge that needs to be made, but it's not easy to just do that in the same way it is to be, look, I've got to be frank with you and those kind of phrases, which just roll off our tongues. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I've been following this work for 10 years. I can't think of a single time in that 10 years when I've said, can I be vulnerable with you? Um, I have said, listen, I don't have the right words but we have to have this conversation anyway. I might've said, um, I need to circle back with you and talk about a mistake I made. I might have said, um, I don't have all the answers. And right now, I think it would be really wonderful if we could have a collective conversation on how we do this better, right? So it's not that you step into a conversation and say, I'm, I'm here today, hi, I'm Didi, and I'm going to be vulnerable. <laughs> which I think would make an entire room freak out, right? Like, oh gosh. But being vulnerable is, um, you know, a huge part of that is just showing up and letting yourself really be seen. And so that means showing up and bringing my true authentic self to a conversation, showing up and acknowledging when I've, I've stumbled, you know, I talk to other facilitators of this work and it is, it is a lot easier to teach than it is to practice, right? I've read the books. I can regurgitate the material. Um, I can give up and give one heck of a presentation. I still stumble every single day when I walk into my office and I'm confronted with just people. I mean, we're emotional beings COVID was a, a great example of that. We all handled it in a different way. We were all processing it on a different timeline. We didn't, my office didn't get to um, telework to the degree others did. 
So we were going into the, you know, into the Pentagon every day. And so people handle that in different ways, right? Um, people are dealing with different, uh, different situations at home. You know, it was interesting. I've deployed to Iraq twice, like I said earlier. And um, when we are on the plane and we're getting ready to land, there's certainly a degree of apprehension about the fact that, you know, in 20 minutes, I will be on the ground in Iraq. And you know that, but we all step up to do it. And it's kind of what we signed up for. I was seeing a different degree of um, fear just for coming into the Pentagon. And it took me a long time to really understand what was going on and why I was seeing so much more resistance and so much more fear. And I remember I even said out loud, like, you got to be kidding me. We, we go to Iraq, you know, we've been to Iraq, we've been to Afghanistan, we've been, you know, all of us, we've been at war for 20 years. So all of us have had this experience of going to war and I didn't see this much fear. I have no, uh, you know, I have no proof of this. But I think what it comes down to is when we go to Iraq and we go to Afghanistan, we're putting ourselves in harm's way, right? When I go into the Pentagon and I'm exposed to thousands of people, I'm putting the people I love and care about at home at risk. And that was a vulnerability we hadn't seen before, that I have to go to the Pentagon every day to do my job how do I process the fact that doing so puts those I love most at risk? It's completely different than going to war. We'll go, so I signed up for this. That's what I'm doing. Put me in, right? Um, but I was encountering so much more resistance and fear just to come mm. into the building. And so processing through that, you know, you stumbled. Vulnerability looked like, hey, I didn't handle that conversation well yesterday. Can we, can we talk again? Because what you said really mattered and I want to make sure we're able to address that. Like that's vulnerability. These are the, the conversations that we find really hard, right? I mean, they're all, there's all sorts of a spectrum of conversations that are really hard. What is it about us that makes us like, okay, so sometimes we know we should have done what you just said, said that to that person and gone back there? Because it is, in a sense, going back to something that you're like, well, maybe I should just leave it. Um, what is it about it that makes it so difficult, you know, for us as people? We could probably talk for like days. <laughs> um, I mean, she spent 20 years researching shame and vulnerability, right? There's a lot of, um, I think I was saying it earlier and I got off track. I've talked to other facilitators of this work because if you're a practitioner of the work, there's a lot of shame when you don't do it well right? When you are the person who gets up and teaches it, and then you go into work and you stumble through it, you're like, what am I doing? <laughs> who am I? Who am I to get up and teach this stuff? Um, but I think that's why I, I think that's why so many people gravitate to Dr. Brown's work is because she acknowledges that this is the human experience. And so when we have to circle back, you know, we're probably somewhat ashamed of the behavior. We have a fear of not being perceived as capable. We have a fear of being perceived. R really, we have a fear of being um, shut out from belonging, right? And so to circle back and acknowledge we made a mistake means acknowledging that I might not, uh, I might not belong. You might not, you might not love me. Or I'm not enough, or I'm not as good as I thought I was. Yeah. I mean, that's the shame narrative, right? Not good enough. Who do you think you are? Those are really the two main shame narratives. And mm. so all of it comes down to, am I enough? We don't really use that word very much either. Shame. I mean, it's kind of like a shameful word. You use it in a very distinct context, but it's not something we talk about that, oh, I felt shameful yesterday. That's also really interesting that that, that word is becoming... Uh, it's part, it's a big part of the work, right? And, you know, I think in places like uh, addiction, there is a lot of that as an idea or a concept um, that people misunderstand that an, an addict's behavior as maybe, I don't know, bravado or rejection or um, 
trying to show a, you know, armor up or suit up when actually behind it is a deep sense of shame. That that whole concept, but we all it seems like we all have micro moments of shame throughout the day if we're really looking at it honestly. Is that a fair way to think about it? Like when those little things happen and you're like, oh, I don't want to go back and do that. I don't want to go back and say I'm sorry or or whatever it might be. Yeah, a hundred percent, like a hundred thousand percent. When I first started getting into this work, I was teaching a couple years after I was teaching a class at uh, Georgetown University on women in leadership and national security and foreign policy. And I wanted to use the core of Dr. Brown's work as kind of a foundation for the class, because if you want to talk about hard conversations, if you want to talk about giving good feedback, if you want to talk about doing brave things, you have to first address vulnerability. Like there is really no leadership advancement without addressing vulnerability. And so I was all gung-ho to talk about vulnerability, but I didn't really have a comfort with shame. I didn't really know how it applied. So I just avoided it. And for the next uh, five years, I kind of avoided it, but then four to five years. And then in 2018, we were getting ready to incorporate a larger program into an Air Force uh, Squadron Commander's prep course. And I had to listen to the shame part again, and it really hit me differently. And I realized that we are missing, we spend an inordinate amount of time addressing symptoms because we do not know how to talk about what's at the core, and that's shame. If you think about toxic leadership, toxic leadership is so much a part of protecting, uh, you know, protecting loss of control, protecting the narrative of not good enough, not smart enough, not, uh, not charismatic enough, like something not enough, right? Um, if you look at uh, the challenges uh, with suicide, Shame is at the core of that as well. Shame is one of the highest correlated emotions with suicide. And so there's so many things that show up in our day-to-day behavior uh, that have shame at the root. But like you said, we don't know how to talk about it. And so I decided, um, it kind of goes back to the language. I decided that if you don't use the language, you really can't practice the behavior. And that we have to normalize that discussion. So I started using it. And at first, I did get a lot of kind of like, you know, you're talking to your dog and they tilt their head at you, you know, (laughs) that way. Um, I got a lot of curiosity. But once we got comfortable, my comfort with using the language without going into shame myself allowed those around me to also talk about it. And we started having conversations about the small moments every day that we experience shame and how we show up in those moments. Um, I think it's a conversation we need to start having. I think we're a long way from people being able to have it just because like you said, so many people are unpracticed with that language, but I think we're moving in that direction. You know, you mentioned earlier about showing up your whole self, your whole heart, you know, being really authentic, kind of laying it as it is. These things are related, right? Because that can be hard, first of all, if you're not practiced, if you've been wandering around with some sort of front or not really acknowledging certain things, which, you know, I think for me, half of my adult life is probably that. And then the the, the second half is trying to figure out how to not be that. With yourself, you can have conversations with yourself about, well, that wasn't really me. Like that wasn't coming from a real place. It was coming from a different place. It was coming from a place of ego or attention or shame or insecurity. But if you're going to talk about it with other people, then again, it's like language. If you don't have the words, it can be really difficult to describe or explain what you are actually feeling. So the work that you're doing and the work that Brene does, and you know, we also have a, a uh, one or two facilitators in New Zealand. I know one's on the call, Kayla. Um, language must be a really important piece of all that whole framework and using different words to help people explain and understand things in a certain context. 
Yeah, I think that's why I love the work so much. Um, you know, my my day job was a public affairs officer for the military, right? So I'm dealing with language every day. So it makes sense that that's the part I really gravitated to because I think once we have a language, it unlocks, it gives us a way to communicate with another something that feels so hard to communicate. So when you go through the facilitation program, it walks you through that language in a very um, incremental way. And it helps you identify what shame is and where you might have experienced it. It never ceases to amaze me how often when we take people through the program or through the research that they knew the feeling, they knew their behavior, they didn't know it was shame they were feeling. But then once you have it, it just opens up, it just opens up a whole world because when you're able to label it, you can address it. And when you can address it, you can give yourself completely different options. And as a leader, that's really what we want is options. I need options to be able to navigate so many of the challenges we're facing. And when I understand how I'm showing up and what I bring to that table, it gives me a way to step back and to be honest, have compassion for myself as I go through the process, but also have compassion for the humans, the people, the emotional beings that I am interacting with every single day. Mm. So language is critical. Yeah, it feels like we are maybe and have been too loose. We are too loose with how we use words and how we describe things. And if we get more precise, that can really be helpful. Um, we had a previous conversation with Susan David and she has this concept of emotional agility. And one of her ideas was, well, you have to recognize and identify what is the emotion? Like, how are you? Fabulous. <laughs> Under that, there are so many variances and nuances and shades, especially if it's the opposite. Say if you're not feeling great, you're actually not having a good day. I'm not great. Not great is just not precise enough for anyone to really be able to get a hold of something. Um, let's move somewhere really interesting um, when you talk about building teams or uh, leadership or bonds and how it's related to, to, to trust or this idea of braving trust. For me, at least, I've found that people who really open up and you feel like they're really opening up to you, especially maybe you've only just met them. And you're like, wow, this person's really open and I can feel this is real. Even if you just met them, there's a different sense of trust that you can have in that person versus someone who is much more closed or guarded or skirts around using un imprecise language or words like, oh, I don't know about this. It's not as comfortable. How does it all fit in? How does it all piece together with trust? Hmm. Oh, gosh. I mean, yeah. I, so I love one of the things she says is vulnerability is the first thing I look for in you, but the last thing I want to show you in me. And it kind of goes back to, um, you know, courage is showing up and letting ourselves be seen, letting our true selves be seen. One of my favorite stories about building trust came um, in 2017. I was a commander of a, a group at Barksdale Air Force Base. Um, and at the time, the Air Force USA Today had released uh, an article that said the Air Force gives a disproportionately higher number of Article 15s, which is like our highest level of non-judicial punishment disciplinary action, um, it gives a disproportionately higher number of those Article 15s to our Black members. And that came out in USA Today. And at the time, we didn't really know why. We didn't know uh, what we were going to be able to do to address it. Um, and of course, I wasn't at the headquarters level. So I'm down in the very, you know, I'm down at the lowest level at the, at the unit level. Um, but I knew we had to address it. And so uh, I sent the you know, the basic public affairs guidance out to my squadron commanders. And I asked them to have that conversation. And so about a month goes by and I'm out at lunch with a group of my airmen. And I said to them, you know, um, what did you all think about that conversation you had with your squadron commanders about the article 15s? And they just all kind of looked at me, right? Like during the headlights. 
And I was like, uh-oh. And so I said, did anybody in here have that conversation with their commanders? And again, they just kind of looked at me deer in the headlights. And I said, who in here even knows what I'm talking about? And the only people in the room that day who raised their hand were the black members. And so I stood there for a moment and I was just once again crushed. We talk about emotional exposure, right? Like my heart just broke because I knew by us doing nothing, we broke trust with them, right? They had to make up their own story about what that meant to them. And they had to, um, they had to decide for themselves if they were safe, if they could trust the Air Force, if they could trust their leaders. And so I went back and um, called all my commanders back in the room. And I said, you know, I, I asked you to have this conversation, but you didn't. What happened? And quite like the same look I got at lunch, you know, they all just kind of stared at me for a moment. <laughs> like, oh, no, she's calling us out on it. And so after a few moments, the first one spoke up and she said, uh, you know, ma'am, I try. I want to have that conversation. I read the public affairs guidance, but there are so many questions left unanswered. There's just so much we don't know. And I said, yeah, I get it. And then the second one spoke up and he was a law enforcement professional. He was in charge of the base security. And he said, you know, ma'am, I've been trying to have this conversation. This was um, at the time of uh, Ferguson. And we were um, first hearing the Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. It was when that really started to come onto the national stage. Um, and so he said, I've been trying to have this conversation with friends of mine. It hasn't gone well. I've lost friends on Facebook. And he said, so I don't know what to say. And then the third commander spoke up and he said, you know, ma'am, I'm a black man. And I'm going to walk into my squadron and half of my squadron is going to immediately think I have an agenda and that I have something to prove. And so I, I don't know how to walk into my squadron and have that conversation without alienating half of my squadron. And I said, okay, so you, you, know, you asked earlier about what does it look like to walk into a room and say, I'm going to be vulnerable. And how do we build trust? It looks like this. It looks like the first commander, you know, we had a discussion about what what this conversation would look like and how they could do it. And so it looks like the first commander walking into the room and saying, hey, listen, the story's out there. I don't have all the information. I have a, a thousand questions that I have of this story and of our Air Force. And I'm sure you too have so many questions. Um, and so what I promise you today is I will stay here and take every single question you have. And I will do everything I can to help us find answers. It looks like the second commander walking into his squadron and saying, hey, this story's out there. We have to talk about this. We're law enforcement professionals. This is touching our community both in and outside. And here's what I know. I've tried to have this conversation, but it hasn't gone well. What I do know is we need to have it, but maybe we just don't have the words to have it the way we want to, the way we need to. So can we just grant each other a little bit of grace? Can we just acknowledge that we all have good intentions and that we want to get to the bottom of this, but we stumble through the words with how to do so? And vulnerability and trust building looks like the third commander walking into his squadron and saying, I'm a black man. And no doubt some of you are going to think I have an agenda and I'm biased toward one part of my, my organization. But the reality is, is that we all have bias. And if we can't have an honest conversation about what that bias is or where that lens comes from, then we're never going to be able to get past it. So that story for me, it's a great example of what it means to be vulnerable. They all walked in and shared the one thing they were most uncomfortable with, right? They were honest about what they didn't know and where they were struggling. And then by showing that part of themselves, by showing that honesty and authenticity, they built trust where trust by doing nothing was destroyed. So when you think about the work, that's 
what that does. It brings it together, right? That showing up and just being you with another person helps helps you down that path. That's a really, really incredible story because it shows the different ways in which someone may be experiencing the same thing and the different vulnerabilities that they could lay on the table to open up that space for everybody. Um, you obviously express how you'd approach it beautifully and elegantly. You thought about it. It'd be challenging for them to do that, right? You know, we have a question, how can we get leaders to be more deliberate with their words and their language? Like the way you just expressed those three scenarios was quite clear and articulate. But imagine someone doing that for the first time. I'd bet it would be much more stumbling than, you know, beautiful delivery, right? How how can people do that knowing that it's not going to come out like Obama? Um, I think, it, so for me, it all comes back to honesty, right? For each of them, they were being very honest about their truth. One felt like there was so much information she needed. The other knew he didn't have the language. The third had his own story about race and what that meant to him as a leader. And so they, they one, had to be honest. And two, you have to practice. I mean, I've been following this work for 10 years now. I still stumble through hard conversations. I mean, I've told that story a million times, so sure, it sounds eloquent now, right? But in that moment, we were navigating that together. And I think, you know, that's why I love coaching because mm. it gives you someone to navigate that with. And if you don't have a coach, then find a mentor, find a friend and say, I need to have this conversation. Mm. Can I try it out a couple of times? That is so important. Such a powerful idea. I remember specifically for me, having been coached through those kinds of conversations before, and it sounds so awkward, you know, when I was having to lay lots of people off in the last recession by the you know dozens and dozens, it was like, okay, every single one of these is a really important and personal conversation. And every single one is really difficult, but I have to practice. I have to get it right, not just for me, but for the other person. And um, that practicing is so, so interesting. You know, if you're an athlete um, and you have a coach, you're practicing all the time. Drills are normal, drills are expected. You just practice all, actually you spend your whole career practicing and then 5% of it on performance. But in life, in, in management, in leadership, in different disciplines, we don't build any time to practice. And there aren't any ways to do it easily. Like it feels awkward to say, just pull a friend aside. Hey, I'm just going to practice this, this spiel on you four or five times. It sounds like that's something that we really need to build more space and more muscles and more um, partnership or peers or coaches or ways to do that. So I would I don't disagree with that at all. But I also think it doesn't just have to be practicing the conversation. I think the more you practice, and I don't mean practice as in artificially, but the more you engage the hard conversations, even the mm. small ones, that in itself is practice for the big ones, right? Like a muscle. Yeah, it's a total muscle. And so the more I can engage that discomfort for the smallest of things, like I need, let's have a conversation about the email you wrote and where I think it could be better. Or let's have a conversation about, you know, your delinquency, or let's have a conversation about your tardiness for work. I mean, all these small moments um, lead to gaining a comfort with the language for the bigger moments. And, and even just having the conversations about the emotions, mm -hmm. You know, in my organization, we had already, we had been using Brene's work for probably a year at that point. And so we'd already had conversations around vulnerability and, and a huge part of that conversation was empathy, right? We got to practice one with one another. There was no judgment about the fact that this is hard and none of us are, none of us are born equipped. These are skills we have to explore, to practice, to perfect. And when I get them wrong, and I do regularly, I have to have the humility and the vulnerability to circle back and say, mm. that didn't come out the way I would have liked it. That didn't, I didn't say that as well as I could have. Can I, you know, can I circle back and try that again? Mm. Another question um, 
that's come in from Leanne, which is around this idea of um, how do we encourage that to happen in the moment versus the circling back? Like, how do you break that barrier of, you know, you need to do or respond there in the practicing sense versus oh, I'm going to take it away and I'm going to come back to it. Like, how do you build that habit of not letting it not be addressed in this in the actual moment? There's a couple of things coming to mind for me. One, it's something I practice so regularly that in the moment I'm more prepared. So I'm more likely to engage it. But I also know myself well enough when I'm distracted or I'm tired, I'm frustrated, and I'm more apt to not do it well. You know, like if I'm tired, if I'm hungry, if I've got something else going on and I suddenly someone comes to me with an emotional problem and that first reaction you have of, oh, I don't have time for this, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. in those moments, I'm practicing enough. I'm conscious enough that I will actually stop and say, what you are bringing to me right now matters to me so much. And it is so important and I want to give it its due attention and I can't right now. Can we set up a time an hour from now, tomorrow, so that I can give you the attention I really want to? And I have yet to say that and have anyone get upset with me. I think people yeah. actually really appreciate the honesty of it. Um, it goes back to that quote, right? I want to be the mm -hmm. man in the arena. Mm. I want to be the man in the arena. I might be stumbling. I might fail, but I'm in it. And so I just make a commitment that to me, that is important and I'm going to do it. But again, please don't take that to mean like I address everything right in that moment. I, I really do sometimes go, I, I'm not ready for this. I'm in my own shame spiral. You know, I'm in my own story. I'm in my own uh, negative thought process. Now is not the time for me to engage. There's nothing that says you have to address anything immediately. I actually think there is great courage in postponing until you can show up as your best self. I love it when Brene says, when I'm in a shame spiral, I'm not fit for human consumption. <laughs> right. So you take yourself out of the arena to come back in. But acknowledging that is part of being in the arena. A hundred percent. There's nothing that says I have to address this right now. I am better served they are better served by taking a step back, taking a breath, getting my emotions in check, really asking myself some hard questions about why something mm. might be happening. And then most important, coming back to the moment with compassion and kindness. We've just about come on the hour. Um, thanks guys for the different and interesting questions. Uh, but I think I'd love to end on um, this idea of our own stories and this, this word rise, can you share what is this and what can we take away from this idea? The idea of the stories that we carry around and how do we kind of work through them and, and deal with acknowledging them? You mentioned earlier stories. You know, it goes back to your shame narrative. I think a lot of the stories have at their core your shame narrative. I'm very open as I talk about this all the time. My shame narrative is not smart enough. So anytime something happens that someone or something makes me feel not smart enough, I immediately go into a shame spiral. And the story I start telling myself is, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't belong here. Um, and it usually always comes back to something with intelligence. Uh, but I know that now because I've done the work, right? I know what my real shame trigger is. And so as soon as I hear myself, that little voice in my head go, oh, you're so stupid, mm. or, oh, you're not smart enough. That for me, because I've been doing this for so long, it's like a muscle. Everything about this is a muscle that stops me in my track. And I go, is this a story or is that true? Mm. Right. And then, and then I can talk myself back into a more healthy perspective as I explore the situation. So recognizing, acknowledging the story, identifying and recognizing when you're playing that tape back. So there's one question that, that's got most upvotes. I don't think I understand it 100%, but you might. And it's about the fact that COVID is not going anywhere. So COVID's not a past tense thing, it's a current thing. Um, the question is, how do we move from vulnerability in the present tense to having experienced these 
epic uh, disruptive events and then moving back into vulnerability in the present tense again? Um, I think if I'm hearing the question, what I'm taking away from it is like we are in an unbelievable place of uncertainty, which means we are in an unbelievable place of vulnerability. But right. the reality is we're in uncertainty with or without COVID. COVID is just really highlighting that uncertainty. But we're in uncertainty that this idea that maybe we are certain and we have control is a complete lie. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're just acknowledging the uncertainty more now than we do in other times. Because, you know, she's been doing this work for 20 years. Vulnerability didn't just come along. Uncertainty didn't just come along. We have lived through it and we live in it every day. And so understanding how you show up in that and learning the muscle of identifying that and giving yourself a different option is not a skill set that will be unique to this time. It's a skill set we have to grow and learn regardless of COVID. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, Together at Home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.